Hi, I'm Walter Lane, and you've tuned in to a sermon podcast from the Netherwood Park Church of Christ in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Thanks for listening. My name is Addison Keel, and um, my wife and my daughter are in Ukraine right now because my wife is Ukrainian, and we got some money together, and we got her a plane ticket to go and to visit her family that she hasn't seen in like two years. And so um, they, they made it there safe. They, they got there fine. They're with family now, which is great. Um, but I've already had my first casualty of, of not having my wife around. <laughs> today. Uh, I forgot my checkbook today. <laughs> and so normally that's in our, our diaper bag that we bring here every day. And so I know I just didn't think about it. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm officially a lonely guy. Um, but uh, prayers for me, prayers for my wife to have a great time while, while she's there. Uh, prayers for them to have a safe return back would be very much appreciated. Um, our text uh, today is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Um, but I titled this sermon, uh, Will the Last Be First?, which is actually taken out of Matthew uh, and, and a few other places. Um, but I, I really wanted to, to look at this and to study this because of uh, some of the uh, tensions that I had as a Christian growing up. Uh, so in, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, uh, we see Jesus answering some questions of a rich man. The rich man comes to him and says, you know, Lord, what must I do? What must I do to be saved? What what do I need to do to get to heaven? And Jesus responds, you've got too much money. You need to you need to get rid of it. You need to humble yourself and then you can get into the kingdom of God. But the rich man goes away very sad because he has a lot of wealth. That's a lot to lose. And so as he's leaving, Jesus uh, teaches the lesson to, uh, a lesson to his disciples. And at the very end, he says, Many who are first will be last, and the last first. I was baptized at the age of 12, November 10th, 2002. I had just turned 12. I had actually put off getting baptized and being added to God's kingdom because I thought that I had to somehow like mature overnight. That, you know, to be a Christian meant you had to be, you know, have everything under control, that you had to sit there. Um, we played soccer in the hallways of the church building all the time. And I thought that for some reason, being a Christian meant you couldn't do that anymore. You couldn't, like, climb on some of the pews or anything like that. And so I just kind of put it off because I didn't feel like I could be what I thought I was supposed to be. 
I had questions about my motives and about what was going on with my heart. And so, um, even after I became a Christian, I was still struggling with these kinds of concepts, especially one like this. As a kid, I grew up knowing that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. But oddly enough, when you know this, you start to think of ways that you might be able to, you know, preemptively put yourself last so that you'll end up being first again, you know, because that's what we really want. So I, I kind of imagine that maybe Jesus is really telling us the way how to get to first. If you're trying to get to first, you're going to be really frustrated because you're going to end up being last. But perhaps like some of these um, car races or uh, Olympic races where you, you want to be somewhere in the middle until the very end and then you can just shoot ahead and then you can get first place, stuff like that. If you want to get ahead... You have to get behind. And then you'll be able to pass everyone and be the winner in the end. Well, this didn't, it didn't sit right with me because it just kind of seemed to be just the opposite of what we were supposed to be. There was one particular time when uh, my youth minister wanted to illustrate this passage in a very real way. And so we were having sort of a devo and... Uh, we were lining up for food to get, get some hot dogs and drinks and stuff like that. And as we were lined up, he, you know, he just kind of yelled out, Stop! The last shall be first. And so he took the first half of the line and the second half of the line and he switched them like that. And so if you were kind of in the back of the line, now all of a sudden you were in the front of the line. And that was, it came out of nowhere. We were all shocked and surprised by it. And so it was kind of an interesting thing. But the lesson that we learned was not that it's really the first two are going to be last, but it's kind of like this middle section right here. And, and you can try it out with your own hands. But if you switch the sections like that, is the people who are very first and very last are now kind of the middle. And that middle is now the first and the last. So it's more about the middle who's going to be first in this scenario. I was prepared the next time. The next time we had this. I mean, honestly, it didn't really matter to me much that I got to eat first or be first in line. But uh, I just thought it was interesting to see if I could maybe, you know, position myself in such a way that I would be able to, to get to the front of the line just to see if I could. And so I, I was ready for the next time we did that. <laughs> Again, it bothered me because I was wondering, am I still really trying to be first if Jesus is talking about the last, what's our motivation? What's our incentive to be last? I feel that a lot of times our incentive to be last is actually being first, which seems odd to me. When we turn the other cheek, are we really just trying to pull strings so that we can have the last laugh? The world is all about getting ahead, and it can't really understand what it truly means to be selfless. So that brings us to uh, Philippians chapter 2, and I thank you uh, to Bob for reading that for us. This passage is what I consider to be one of the most beautifully written theological pieces about Jesus Christ and what he, had, what he uh, did in coming here to earth. It's a core, part, uh, a core part of what Paul believes and the ultimate example Paul uses for Christian examples. I believe although I can't prove it, 
that more pages have been written on Philippians 2, 5 through 11 than perhaps any other passage out there. And for good reason. It's such a good part of what Paul has to say. So at the time of writing this, Paul's actually in prison. And he's trying to explain the circumstances to the Philippian church because it creates kind of a really odd uh, situation. If you're God's servant, what are you doing in prison? What are you doing suffering for the gospel's sake? Aren't you supposed to be out there? Aren't you supposed to be preaching? Aren't you supposed to be favored by God? All these kinds of stuff. How is it that you're rotting in prison instead? And so this example, 5 through 11, is going to help us understand what Paul is doing in prison and how that's not really a bad thing. He also writes this to explain and to encourage the members to stay unified in the midst of adversity. It is very common in the Roman world to try to work your way up. I know that we think of it, we tend to think of this as kind of the American dream, to be able to start low and work your way up. But there are several places in the Roman world where you could actually do the very same thing. You could work your way up. And so Paul's challenge to an otherwise really healthy church is to put other people first instead of yourselves. With the Jew and Gentile controversy still going on around them and with the state of Christianity's acceptance, Paul wants them to be on guard for each other during these rough times. The key to both of these things that Paul is trying to accomplish is a radical form of submission found only in the example of Jesus Christ. Paul encourages the Philippians to be of a selfless mindset. And uh, the example of Christ actually gives us five ingredients to this selfless mindset. Uh, When you read through 5 through 11, you can pick up all five of these things. The first one is the rejection of yourself. And and that's not to mean like, is this mic going on? Yeah, I can move around now. So that's not to mean that you're supposed to reject yourself and think of yourself as worthless. Um, It's actually to take your rights, your authority, your example, and to be able to use that for good purposes for other people. It's a rejection of yourself in favor of other people. Uh, The second one is obedience. Christ shows us an example of how to uh, be in submission and obedience to God and how this uh, works with our selfless mindset. Then there's humility. You can't be uh, in submission, rejecting yourself, and still thinking yourself to be the most important person here. It just kind of goes against it. Uh, the next one is suffering. And now this one might um, cause us to, to kind of have a double take right here because suffering is such a, um, a core part of what it means to be a Christian. Jesus Christ gives us the most ultimate example of this because he didn't just come to earth. He didn't just give up those kinds of things. He came to earth as a servant. A servant with no entitlements, no rights, no anything. And he came and was wrongly put to death on a cross. A very shameful, a very painful, excruciating way to die. Suffering is very much a part of the selfless mindset. And then the last one is volition. Uh, And simply, you can go through all of these things, but if you're being coerced and forced into doing it, then it's not really selflessness at all. And so all of this has to be a free choice for for you to do it.
Now, this sermon is really just going to focus on the rejection of self from this Philippians chapter 2. I mean, you might be able to make this a sermon series, but we're going to focus on that first part, the rejection of self. So in verse 6, Paul uses a really, really interesting word, and I'm going to nerd out on you for a little bit. I'm sorry in advance, but I think it's worth it. Paul uses a word, and the Greek word is called harpagmon. And it's okay to whisper that to yourself, harpagmon. It's a fun word to say. Uh, This word uh, in our English language uh, is usually and commonly translated as the word grasped. Jesus did not uh, consider equality with God something to be grasped. And I think that's a wonderful translation. I'm really, really excited about it. But I did some study, uh, and I found that... um, because it's a word, it's, it's only used one time in the entire New Testament, in the entire Bible, just the one time, and it's right here. And what, what's more than that is um, it's not really used very frequently outside of the New Testament or outside of the Bible. Other authors of the time don't really use it either, and so it kind of threw some of these translators for a loop as to really how to, to work at it. And perhaps about 50 years ago, uh, a group found a lot of documents from that time period with more uses of this word, and it made it easier for them to kind of figure out what it is. So again, I really love the definition grasp, but when I did study on it, I found it to mean just a bit more than that, and I would love to share that with you today. Um, Harpagmon uh, has more emotion to it. Uh, one of the definitions given was something like this. A windfall, that is something unexpectedly cool, something unexpectedly awesome, you didn't even have planned for your day, so good that one would be a fool not to take advantage of it. And it calls to mind kind of like the image of like pouncing on it, like you know, just dropping everything and going for it. Mind... Uh, I was thinking of things that might be something like Harpogmon for us. And so I, for my own self, when I was in grad school, I had a professor who was known for giving you incredible amounts of reading. You know, books about this thick that you had to read through the whole semester and then take a final on everything included. And then, then everything that we talked about in class and all the articles he decided to give us. And, and he never gave study guides at all. And so Harpogmon at the time for me would have been if he had come to me and said, Addison, I have a study guide in my office. And for the next four hours, you can come and take a look at it. And once four hours are over, then, then we're done and it's going to you know, be put away. Oh, I could tell you, I would just drop everything. Drop everything I was doing, scratch all my plans, and you know where to find me for the next four hours. It would be too good to pass up. I would, would love to have had that. Well, I asked my wife what Harpogma might be for her, and she came up with a very different example. Uh, she said that if, for her, if she were to be walking along in the mall and come by her favorite store and see a big, huge red sign that said, Sale! Everything 95% off. Today only. She'd drop everything, no matter what she was doing, no matter what she had planned, and she would just drop everything, and she would be there the rest of the day. 
That's too good for her to pass up. She would love to do it. And if anybody knew her and saw her just walking by it, they'd be like, what are you doing? It's your favorite store. It's a 95% off. How can you pass that up? That is just too good. Um, there's another example. For a while, I worked for a, a, a Christian bookstore called Family Christian, uh, and they were in the process of actually liquidating at the time, and so I was brought on just to kind of help with all the volume and all the traffic and things like that. And uh, we actually did have a 95% off sale. I know it's not common to have those things, but we were trying to just get rid of everything. And so uh, one particular customer came in, and he came in preemptively and said, I need some help. I want to buy a lot of stuff, but I only have a certain amount of money on my card that I can use. So if you don't mind, we'll ring it up and then see you know, what we can work with. And I said, absolutely. And so he went and he got a bunch of stuff. And he came by and I rang it up and he looked at the prices about what he was actually going to pay and a huge smile just came on his face. And he said, that's it? And I said, yes, sir, that's it. And so he said, I'll be back. And so he went and, he, he went and spent about another hour looking for more things. Um, I, I didn't actually keep his receipt or our, our copy of the receipt, but he saved over $900 that day. He spent a lot of money. And then um, when he realized that he had saved that much, he actually went back and saved the next day another 250 bucks. So he was a really happy guy. So we have some stories, um, some examples from antiquity about what Harpogmon might be like. Um, one example comes from the story Aethiopica. And it, it goes like this. A young man, so handsome, and in his prime, thrusts away a young woman of qualities, a young woman of similar qualities, who yearns for him and does not regard the matter as Harpogma nor even as a piece of good luck. How relatable, you know. Uh, I've seen examples like that. There's a guy who thinks he's so cool, he's just the best thing that's ever hit this earth, that he doesn't really consider it anything special if if a girl who's also incredibly beautiful wants to hang out with him or wants to go out with him. He's he's just not as interested, right? There's another uh, example. Uh, Isidore writes... If he considered being equal a windfall, he would not have humbled himself, lest doing the work of a servant be made an inference about his status. For once a servant has been set free and honored with sonship, he would not consent to menial work, since he regards harpagma, or a windfall. If, if, you, if you've been a servant and you've been elevated to the status of sonship, you're above having to do all that stuff a servant had to do before, and there's no way you're going to go back to it. It's too good. I'm not going to let that go. All right, thank you for being with me as, as I nerded out just a minute. So how does that translate to Jesus interpreting his rights and his status? Jesus does not consider his equality with God something to use to his advantage, something too good to lose, something to use to his advantage against other people, or something that he is, in in fact, entitled to. He doesn't do any of that. He could if he wanted to, but he chooses on his own free will to give up those things for the sake of God's honor and for us. Now, if you really think about it, 
what would it really be like to be God, to have that kind of status, that kind of authority, that kind of power, to be due all of that kind of respect, and to decide that that's not worth it. That, that is, I, I can do without that. I can give that up. I don't need to cling to it. I don't need to grasp it, as a lot of our translations say. I don't need to be crazily uh, addicted or concerned or sensitive to losing this. It's not something I have to have. He was able to give that up. Not just for our sake, but for God's sake as well. This, this is Jesus Christ's interpretation of his status, of his respect and his honor. He decided that this isn't something that um, me being the son of God, me being this, this have, having this kind of authority and this kind of power means that I'm free to serve. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have been proven innocent in court. He could have gotten revenge, rubbing it in our faces. He could have stayed in heaven. He could have done any of that if he did consider his status and all the things that go with being the Son of God to be something worth grasping and holding on to. Jesus' rights and entitlements as the Son of God by nature are obvious. If we would respect and honor any human position, any human authority, we would be blown away by what Christ deserves. But Christ indeed has the correct interpretation of his status and entitlements. It moves one to become submissive to God and a servant of others. In fact, Jesus humbles himself and is willing and willingly lets go of everything he deserves to suffer on a cross. To God's honor, he even blesses and serves the very ones who strike him. But what's so amazing is that God doesn't leave him in this kind of state. God exalts him and gives him the name above all names. So in response to Christ's voluntary rejection of his status, God voluntarily exalts him. God's selfless nature is on display, mirroring Christ. This is how God treats God. Both God and Christ participating in self-giving. So there's a few application points that I'd like to point out for us today. Number one... uh, Selflessness is a divine initiative, and by this I mean that God started it. If it's appropriate for God, the Son, to willingly submit to God, the Father, how much more is it appropriate for us to submit to God? And what kind of example is this setting for us in submitting and serving and putting others first here on earth? If it's that appropriate for God to do it, it is so appropriate for us to do it. Um, what's, what's amazing is that God and Christ honor each other through their selfless acts. God doesn't sit there and think of, you know, in, you're entitled to worship me, you're entitled to serve me. Uh, and Christ doesn't say that I'm entitled to not do that. In fact, they both give it as a free gift to each other. And in my opinion, this is what marriage ought to be like. Marriage ought to be a gift every day from one person to the, to the other as a selfless gift. Not, not as some kind of expectation or quota to meet, but as a free gift to each other. And that is exactly what God and Christ have set as an example. Notice that there's no strife. There's no power struggle. There's no hidden resentment. Just unity. 
just free gifts of love and sacrifice to each other. The second thing is that Christians recognize that rejecting rights means letting go of trying to get ahead. And this is where I kind of felt that tension before. We need to avoid taking advantage of whatever rights and privileges we may possess for the sake of humility and for the sake of servanthood. We shouldn't consider getting what we deserve as something to cling to. And I've seen that before. If you've ever seen, um, like if you've been to the grocery store, or if you've been to any other store, to be honest, and you see those magazines on the side right by the cashier, and you read some of the, um, some of the headlines on it, uh, like six or seven times out of ten, it's all some kind of revenge story. You know, so-and-so got the sweetest revenge on this person for what they did to them. And that is such a worldly way to look at it. But as Christians, we can't be doing that. As Christians, we're supposed to follow the example of Christ who gave everything up, who turned the other cheek, who has done all of this stuff in servanthood and humility for the sake of other people. And the third one is that the proper interpretation of our status as Christians is service to our Lord and to others. The way in which Christ related to others is so countercultural. Just like we already mentioned about these, these tabloids and things like that. It's so easy for the world to get involved with that kind of stuff. But Christ relates in a countercultural way. The key lies not in the dismissal of status or social order. That is, we need to make everybody equal. That's not the issue here. The issue here is that, so if you are in this kind of status and in this kind of authority, here's how you ought to look at yourself in reinterpreting what it means to even have these rights in the first place. I've got a final story that I want to say and then a few concluding remarks before we end today. When I think of um, letting go of your entitlements, letting go of trying to get revenge, uh, I keep coming back to this particular story. It's June 17, 2015. A blonde 21-year-old man entered the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in downtown Charleston. It was a Wednesday night, and several members of the church had just gathered to study the Bible as they had done most every other Wednesday. The Emmanuel AME Church is one of the oldest and well-known historically black congregations, having played a part in the civil rights movement. The man asked for the pastor and sat down next to him in the Bible study. After spending some time listening, he began to disagree as they discussed the Bible. As the class ended, the members closed with a prayer. But the man, Dylan Roof, a self-proclaimed white supremacist with a boiling hatred for blacks, pulled out a gun and aimed it at one of the members. He then began firing upon the members. The attack lasted about six minutes. Roof reloaded his gun five times. Nine people died that night, eight on the scene and another in the hospital. A mother and a five-year-old managed to escape by pretending to be dead. A few days later, Roof was arrested and put on trial, rightfully so. The families got a chance to meet Roof in court through a video conference and express their feelings to him. 
At this point, the world would have used this moment to get revenge and tell him how much they hated him for what he did. The world would have relished the chance to spit in his face and have that last laugh. But these people were different. Many cried and told him how they would never be the same again. Others expressed sorrow by reminding him that they welcomed him with open arms. But most importantly, they all agreed that they forgave him. And they would have welcomed him again. They prayed for him and that he might find God, that he might find repentance. One of the family members said, quote, If at any point before you are sentenced and you're in prison and you want me to come to you and pray with you, I will do that. Selflessness is not simply the rationale of being humble now so that you can have glory in the future. Rather, the rationale for selflessness is dependent on the identity of the Godhead, on the Trinity. It is a means by which someone lets go of entitlements truly and sincerely without the temptation of getting ahead for the benefit of others. The result is not just a fuller sense of righteousness untarnished by greed, but an elevation as a community into the character of God. To be last means to truly let go of your entitlements, humbling yourself to some of the worst suffering there is without needing to get even. It means loving your enemies and serving them. In this is true worship because it truly honors God. So what holds you back? What might hold you back from allowing God to work through you in the fullest sense? What kind of things might you consider harpagmon, too good to let go, too good to give up, too good not to take advantage of, and too entitled to let go? Let's take the example of Christ and letting go of those things, surrendering to God, and get outside of our boat. Let's stand and sing together. Yeah.